Joshua chapter 1 through 4, if you will remember, is an account of the preparations that were made by God's people to enter the land of promise. They have now crossed the Jordan River, that impossible barrier that stood in their way, but at the appropriate time, God dried it up and they crossed over on dry ground. Now they are facing another impossible task, and that is the task of conquering Jericho, those huge walled cities, that city that stands as a barrier, the access point to all the roads that go through Canaan. Now they face this impossible task. The Jordan has shut off behind them. There's no retreat. They've made a beachhead into the nation. There's no turning back. They must now go forward or die. What is it that God wants to do in our life and in our midst to make us victorious, to give us renewal, to revive us, to restore us to the right relationship with Him? What is it that God wants to teach us out of the book of Joshua about victorious Christian living. If you want a parallel to the book of Joshua, you would find it in the book of Ephesians. For in that book, it tells us about what we have and who we are in Christ. These lessons are lessons for all of us to learn about the requirements for renewal and the standards that God sets in His Holy Word for us to live by faith and to walk with Him. God wants to do more in us than we can possibly imagine. We get so caught up in what we're going to do for God and God wants us to realize that we're supposed to be something before we do something. God is wanting to do something in your life today, significant, supernatural, and I'm praying that you'll let him do that as we talk about these prerequisites for victory. Now, there are a couple of things that kind of overarch this whole chapter. One is obedience always precedes blessings. There's not a one of us that doesn't want God to bless our lives. But obedience always precedes blessings. If you want the blessings of God on your life personally or on your home or on your business or on the church corporately, then we must understand that God gives blessings in proportion to our obedience to Him. Secondly, consecration always comes and precedes conquest. God wants us consecrated to him before he allows conquest to come in our lives. Now, they are at Gilgal. Remember, Gilgal is a place of remembrance. It's a place of restoration. It's a place of renunciation of sin. It's a place of coming back together that they would come to and remind their children over and over and over again about what God had done in their midst. But how does God remind us? And what does God want to do in us? And how does he accomplish victory in our lives? Well, there are several key words that I want us to look at. The first word is the word consecration. Consecration. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5 in Joshua, if you would, please. Chapter 5 and verse 2. For all the people who came out were circumcised. But all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. And their children whom he raised up in their place... Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. 
Now, those of you that understand the history of the Old Testament know that circumcision was a physical sign of God's covenant with his people. It distinguished his people from all the people of the earth. It was a physical sign with spiritual overtones. All through the Old Testament, you find this thought woven through. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says, circumcise your hearts and stiffen your necks no more. In Jeremiah chapter 4, he says, circumcise yourself to the Lord. And in Hebrews chapter 4, he kind of brings this thought about in what the Word of God does with us when he says the Word of God is quick and is powerful and is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There must be consecration. Now, you've got to understand, Gilgal, one of the reasons for staying there was this was the place to deal with sin. This was the place for God to cut out of their lives that sin, to, to cleanse themselves so that they could be a pure and holy set-aside people before they went to take Jericho. Now, you've got to realize the test of faith that is involved here. Because you see, when Joshua commanded that all of them be circumcised, what happens was he incapacitated his army right in the shadow of the enemy. What God was trying to do was tell them, don't circumcise on the other side of Canaan. You circumcise on this side so that you know that I have made you weak so that I can make you strong. That I have put you in a point of vulnerability so that I can make you victorious, so that I can do something in your life, so that if the enemy comes and if the enemy attacks you, you will know it's not in your strength and it's not in your power, but it is in my power that you conquer. There must be consecration. And in every one of our lives today, there is something that needs to be cut out by the Word of God and placed on the altar and say, God, I'm tired of having this in my life. I want victory over it in my life. And the first thing that happens before you conquer that is you have to consecrate your life to God. Secondly, there must be affirmation. Look at verse 10. Affirmation. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. Now, they had only observed the Passover two other times. One, you remember, was in their night before they left Egypt and the death angel was passing over and taking the firstborn, the last plague that was going to come. And God told them to take the blood of an unblemished lamb and sprinkle it over the doorpost. And when the, lamb, the death angel saw that, the, he would pass over that home. They celebrated that night in those homes their deliverance from Egypt. In Sinai, one year later, on the anniversary of that Passover, they celebrated again. But they did not celebrate the Passover for the next 40 years until Joshua chapter 5. Now, why? It's because when you have disobeyed God, when you have not believed the promises of God, when you have not accepted the protection of God, when you've not walked in the power of God, and you've chosen to disobey God, you don't have anything to celebrate. And the Passover was a time of celebration, of God's deliverance, of God's victory. And you see, they didn't believe God could deliver them from the land where all those people looked like giants. And so God said, you won't celebrate the Passover because you don't believe I can deliver you. You see, the reason some people get nothing out of the Lord's Supper is because they've forgotten what they've been delivered from. We're going to take the Lord's Supper tonight. And we're going to come together and the Lord Jesus, the God of heaven, invites you to come and to participate and to remember him and we're to do it until he comes, Paul says. 
And we're going to come and gather, but some will not come because you've forgotten what it, what it was like to be lost. And that's why Jesus said you need to remember because there was a day when you were lost, but when you passed through the blood of Jesus Christ, you found forgiveness of your sins. And when you found that, you should always remember what it was like to be lost so you can appreciate what it's like to be saved. You see, circumcision and baptism have very much in common. They are both external signs of an internal commitment. The Passover and the Lord's Supper have very much in common. They are remembrances of what God has done for us through the blood of Jesus. Now, they forfeited their, their right to do that. But now they come and observe it. And in the observance of the Lord's Supper and the observance of the Passover, they affirm three things that we will affirm tonight. Number one, their deliverance by the blood. They affirmed by taking the Passover that they had been delivered by the blood. Secondly, they affirmed their identity as God's people. Now, who takes the Lord's Supper? Anybody that wants to? No, just the redeemed in the body. Just the redeemed. Now, it's not closed. We don't close it anymore, you know, like Baptist churches used to. If you're not a member of this particular church, you can't take it. We believe that you can take the Lord's Supper as long as you've been saved by the Lord. Now, we identify as God's people. And when we sit on pews and in a congregation with people and we take that, and when the Jews took the Passover, it was their identifying mark that they were a part of God's people, that they had something to celebrate, their redemption through the blood. And then thirdly, it was their intention. They affirmed their intention to obey God. They had intentions to follow God and to obey God, and so they celebrated the Passover. Our forefathers did not believe that you could deliver them, but we celebrate the Passover because we believe you will deliver us and you will deliver the enemy into our hands. So there was this identification. Then there's appropriation. Appropriation in verse 11. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. <laughs> Can you imagine what it's like to eat manna for 40 years and then all of a sudden you get to eat the fruit of the land that God has promised you? It's got to be something like having your first bite of real cheesecake. Something like that. I, I could remember uh, a time when Erin was very, very small. She was only, I don't know, about 12 or 13 months old. And, and uh, we, you know, Terry and I liked chocolate, but when she got pregnant with Erin, with she began to be addicted to chocolate. And being the sympathetic hus husband that I am, I felt like I needed to share in that burden. And so... Uh, <laughs> So, you know, when, when Aaron came along, we said, no, we're not going to give her all this kind of stuff and everything. Well, we were out to, we were out to eat somewhere with Joe Estes one time. He was a friend of ours, and, and he had a milkshake, a chocolate milkshake. And you know how you stick the straw down in the milkshake, and that milkshake comes up in there? Well, he put his finger right there on the top of the straw. And here's Aaron. She's just a little baby. She's sitting there in that high chair, and he reaches over there, and he just lets that straw go into her mouth, and she tastes that chocolate. You should have seen her eyes. Somewhere deep within her heart, she said, this is not baby food. This is real stuff. I have reached the promised land, and it's bathed in chocolate. 
Terry and I were on vacation. We ate in a restaurant. It must be a restaurant. Those people had to be saved that owned it because the name of the restaurant was Bread and Chocolate. <laughs> you heard about the two ladies that died and went to heaven? They were talking about how glorious heaven was. They said, yeah, and just think, if we hadn't eaten all that health food, we could have been here 20 years ago. <laughs> here are the people of God, and they are in the promised land, and they've tasted of this new food that has been there for 40 years waiting for them. That food was there. You remember the spies brought back the food because they knew that just telling them about the food, they wouldn't believe it. So they had to bring back evidence of how good the food really was. And so they brought it back and they said, here's what's ours. But they had to wait 40 years before anybody got to taste it. Well, they tasted of that food. Let me tell you what that is. That's appropriation. The Word of God tells us all the riches that are ours, all the food that is ours when we feed on Jesus Christ all that is ours in our fellowship with God. And what God wants us to do is to see that he has laid before us a banquet table of spiritual riches and a banquet table of meeting all our needs according to his riches in heaven and that he will supply everything that you need. And God says, if you just taste of it, you'll find out it's as good as I said it was. God wants us to appropriate what he has promised these promises are not in this book to be dry and to be read and to be uh, nodding agreement given to them and say, well, that's great, that's good, but it doesn't mean anything for me. No, God's provisions and God's protection and God's power are there for us. And I tell you, I, I read the book of Ephesians and I read Colossians and I read what all God promised us that I would have victory and I would have power and that I could overcome the world and I could do greater works and all of that. And sometimes I feel like my knowledge and what I've appropriated of God wouldn't even fill a thimble when I see what all He's promised me that I can be. I don't want to die still eating manna when God's got something better for me to eat. There's appropriation. You and I need to appropriate what God's got for us. Henry Ward Beecher said, A victory inside us is 10,000 times more glorious than any victory can be outside of us. I spent a lot of my Christian life watching people have victory and wishing it could be mine. But when I took a step over and found out the victory could be mine and I didn't just have to watch, I could participate... It made all the difference in my life. Now, once you appropriate it, then what happens? Then we come to the last word, and that's a declaration, verse 13. Now, let's read that verse again. Let's pick up in verse 14. You remember that the man stood by him, and in verse 14, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? By the way, that ought to be the question that you and I ask every time we walk through the doors of this church. Lord, what do you want to say to me today? Not what do you want to say to my wife or my kids or those people in my Sunday school class or somebody. Lord, what does my Lord have to say to his servant today? What do you want to speak to my heart today? What do you want to change about my life today? What do you want to rectify in me? What kind of relationship are you trying to build up in my life? Lord, what do you want to say to my heart today? I tell you, when you ask God that question in honest searching, you will never be disappointed. He will always give you an answer. God will not be silent if you have said, Lord, what do you want to say to your servant? 
Then in verse 15, the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now here's Joshua. He's a good leader. He's a competent leader, but he's never faced a Jericho before. He doesn't have any uh, updated military equipment. He's got a few soldiers, and they've got some spears and some bows, but they don't have battering rams, and they don't have any chariots. They don't have the sophisticated equipment to scale the walls. They don't have any of that kind of stuff. What's he going to do? So just picture, if you would, Joshua walking around and maybe it was on a, a full moon and he could kind of get a glimpse or maybe the clouds were dark so nobody would see him, but he's walking outside the walls of Jericho. He's only a few miles away from it at Gilgal. And he takes a little walk over that night by himself and he's meditating and he's thinking and he's praying and he's trying to decide, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? How am I going to get this done? How am I going to lead these people? And all of a sudden on the periphery, out the corner of his eye, being a soldier, he's got his guard up and, he's, and he sees something moving off in the periphery. And he turns to draw his sword and as he turns to draw his sword, he stands and he is facing a man in full battle array with his sword drawn. And Joshua says to him, Hey, are you one of us or are you one of them? And the captain of the Lord of hosts says to Joshua, I did not come to take sides. I came to take over. I'm not with you and I'm not with them. I am the captain of the Lord of hosts. You know what God's trying to say to some of us today? saying, Lord, I, I wish you'd tell my wife this, and I wish you'd tell my husband this. I wish you'd get my kids' attention. And we want God to choose sides in all our little debates and our arguments and our discussions and our relationships. And God's saying, look, I, I'm not here to choose sides. I'm not playing that game. This is, not, this is not a coin toss. This is an act of submission. Well, Lord, which ones are you going to bless? Are you going to bless a Baptist or are you going to bless a Methodist? I, I'm not here to choose denominations. You guys did denominations. I just said lordship was the issue. Y'all came up with all that other stuff. I came to take over. Well, Lord, Lord, which church are you going to bless most? I didn't come to bless one church above others. I came to take over all the churches. That's what I'm here for. You see, God is not in the business of choosing sides. He is in the business of making us take the choice to remove our sandals for the place where we are standing is holy ground. Now, who is this captain of the Lord of hosts? Well, Bible scholars tell us it is most likely a theophany, which is a picture, a presentation, the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ. That 1,400 years before he was born in a manger in Bethlehem, he appeared face to face to Joshua. He did it in the burning bush. He did it with Joshua. He reveals himself to Joshua as the captain of the Lord of hosts. Now, what did Joshua need? Joshua needed to figure out how to get an army motivated. Well, brother, when the captain of the Lord of hosts shows up, you got your leader for your army. He said, you're about to enter into spiritual warfare, Joshua. You're about to go into battle like you've never had to go through before. So I just want you to know, I'm here and I'm in charge if you'll just take off your shoes and let me take over. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Peter tells us that he is the prince and captain of life. I know this, if you've ever found yourself in the presence of Jesus, all your fears have been laid aside.
You know, there's nothing wrong with us today that a good glimpse of Jesus wouldn't take care of. Somewhere on the periphery of your life today, He is moving. He keeps coming into the corner. He keeps coming into your line of vision. And He keeps trying to speak to you and talk to you and and deal with you and and confront you about issues. And He keeps moving. And you wheel around and you want to know when He's going to choose your side. He's saying, I'm not going to choose your side. But when you're ready to bow down, I'll take over. Some of you are facing Jericho's today. And it is just as insurmountable to you as those walls were to Joshua. And the enemy or that habit or that sin keeps yelling out at you from behind that wall and mocking your faith and mocking your belief in God and mocking your prayer life and mocking you for every thinking that God could ever give you victory over this. And somewhere in the shadows there stands the captain of the Lord of hosts who says, if you'll bring me to the center, we'll get this thing taken care of. There is a word of declaration. You know what? We don't need to read any more books on how to tear down walls. We don't need to read the ten steps to walloping the wall that stands between you and God. You just need to get a good glimpse of Jesus today. Lord, are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? I'm not for either one, really. I'm for me. <laughs> I sit at the right hand of the Father. There's going to come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that I am Lord in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And we have a choice today to kneel down before Him and to bow before Him and to honor Him or to try to do it on our own and walk in defeat. I began to think as I was working on this message, what's wrong with the church in America today? And why don't we seek Him? A better question. Why don't we see Him when He's moving on the edges of our life? Why are we so blinded? Why do we have those blinders on so much that, that when He's moving and working on the edges of our life, that we don't see Him and we don't bring Him in and, and allow Him to take over the situations in our life? Why don't we, why don't we see all that? Well, because we think the answers is in gimmicks and programs. Getting the machinery oiled up. And forgetting that it's the oil of the Spirit that keeps things going. We think the answer is in our talents and our abilities and our education. We think that we can get by without dealing with sin, but God never aligns Himself with an unclean vessel. We think that God's come to help us out, to supplement, but God has not come to supplement. He's come to supplant God has not come to help. He has come to take over. There's no room when the captain of the Lord of hosts comes in for negotiation. You see, when he takes over, it's his way or no way. When he takes over, it's startling. it, It bothers me. God is not the least bit interested in my ideas and my strategies and my plans for this church. He's only interested in his ideas and his plans and his strategies for this church, and he's trying to figure out if I'm in on them. You know what? It's a humbling experience to know that God doesn't care what you think. He just cares that you obey him. Well, well, Lord, I got some great ideas. You do? Good. That's great. Now, when you get my ideas, we'll talk about it. 
Well, Lord, I've got some, I've got some, some, some neat things, and uh, Lord, I've got this, and I can do this, and I can do that. Listen, it's what I can do that's gotten me in trouble all my life. But when it's what He does through us that makes a difference in us, we begin to see God moving. Let me, let me tell you one of the things that happens to us. We've been trying to do it so long, and we've been defeated so long that we become apathetic and indifferent. Now, let me just be honest with you for a moment. I am grateful that I was born in America. I am grateful to be an American. I am grateful for the freedoms that we have. But I can tell you, if you ever want to be ashamed of being an American, go to the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention and listen to the testimonies of people who have left America to go overseas and give their lives for the gospel. Quite honestly, I'm embarrassed by what we call church. I'm embarrassed by what we call commitment. I sat in a meeting uh, just about two weeks ago at a foreign mission board meeting, and I was sitting here, and there was an empty chair, and then there was a man right here whose father had been a personal bodyguard of the czar of Russia before Lenin and Marx took over. He was from the Ukraine, and he began to share with us about what God was doing in the Ukraine. He was a layman who had stood up in a church in Russia and preached for an hour and 30 minutes. You think I'm bad. And 35 people were saved. I hear these testimonies, and I see these missionaries come back and they've been in services that start at 9 o'clock in the morning and go until noon. You say, well, that's good. 9 o'clock in the noon, we can live with that. But then they take a 30-minute break and then they come back at 1 o'clock and they may be there at 6 o'clock. And some of them stand the whole time because there are not enough seats for them to get in. And they long to hear the gospel and they don't even care how good the preaching is. They just long to hear some good news because they've lived in darkness for so long. And when I see people who have given their lives and seen the, the gospel change people in countries like Yemen and, and in the Ukraine and in the former Soviet Union and all across the world, and I see what God is doing among his people in third world countries that won't have as much to eat this month as we eat for lunch. And I think, God, what are you going to have to do to get our attention? And I grieve and I weep when I think that here is a world responsive to the gospel and not once in the last five years have we ever met our foreign mission goal. Here's a world that is dying to hear the gospel, but we're too busy spending all our money on ourselves to get the gospel out. Well, I think that's one of the reasons it's because Jesus Christ is on the periphery in his own church. We have become like the church in the book of Revelation that says, I am rich and have need of nothing. And Jesus says to us, you are poor and you don't even know it. I think there's another reason. I think it's because pastors 
have watered down the gospel and watered down the demands for holiness and obedience and commitment and the standard of the Lordship of Jesus Christ because we wanted to draw a crowd or because we wanted to please the power brokers in our churches and we wanted to be successful and we wanted to have a good image and we wanted the TV crowd to keep watching so the money would come in. And God says, no, you preach it without apology and let the chips fall where they may. I think there's another reason. I think it's that in America we've got more books on how men can be good dads and good fathers and good husbands that sit on bookshelves and are never read and men are refusing to take the role of leadership. But bless God, through this country there is a movement of men deciding that they're going to be men. I'm going to tell you, I saw a bumper sticker yesterday that summed it up. Real men love Jesus. You're not a man if you can't stand up and say, I love Jesus Christ with all my heart. If you don't have the gumption to stand up and say, Jesus Christ has set me free, then you're not a real man. Lack of spiritual leaders among men. Women who have bought into the lies that Satan has said, you can't be fulfilled in the roles that God has given you, and you have to find your fulfillment out in somebody else's agenda for your life. And you sacrifice what God said he would bless for that which he never promised he would bless. Children who are thought to be cute when they smart mouth at home, when they're this little, and they watch TV shows and they hear people and, and the, the kids talk down to the parents and the dad who's an idiot on TV and he can't figure it out and the kid's smarter than the parents and then they grow up and they smart mouth and they sass and you lay down the rules and they say, we don't care what you think. And they don't know how to live under authority. And if you don't know how to live under authority on earth, you can never learn how to live under God's authority. And singles who think that because they're lonely and they have needs that they can sleep together or get involved in heavy physical relationships because after all, God understands the hurt of my life. Yes, he understands the hurt of your life, but he never condones that you could sleep with somebody else that you are not married to under God's covenant as the way he designed it. That's why the church is in trouble. Because the church has put up with what God has said you need to put out. You know what God wants to do? He wants to do a spiritual house cleaning. In cleaning up these houses and in tearing out these walls and ripping up these floors and tearing out that tile, some houses have been gone into and you discover there are termites there that you never knew were there. You know why? Because until you get below the surface, you never see what's behind the scenes. Some of them have determined that there are things that had to be done that didn't have to think had to be done. There's a disinfecting that has to go on. There's a spraying that's going on right now. 100% Clorox. You better be careful when you deal with that stuff. Why is that? Because the problem is so severe that only 100% Clorox is going to deal with it. You know what God's trying to do? He's trying to disinfect you from all those things that have infected you and kept you from being what he wants you to be. But there must be a declaration. There must be a removing of the sandals. There must be a taking off of those things. Well, I didn't know quite how to end this message this morning. And I was sharing with my kids last night and with my wife about what I was going to preach on. And so I said, I'm preaching on Joshua chapter 5 where uh, the captain of the Lord of hosts appeared. And, and Aaron, being the theologian that she is, said, well, why don't you use that statue in your office? And I thought, that's a good idea. So I sat down with this statue that sits in a prominent place in my office where I can 
see it. I have two. I have one of Moses with the law and one of Joshua because Joshua is the first symbol we see of God's grace. So I have the law and I have grace. And they sit on a countertop where I can see them in my office when I look out my door. Here's the captain of the Lord of hosts with his sword drawn. Here's Joshua, now almost 80 years old, with his hand on the ground, his knee kneeling down, and in this hand, you can't see it, but in this hand he's taking off his sandal. This piece is called Holy Ground, and inscribed on it is Joshua 5, 13 through 15. And I saw that, and I looked at it, and I said, God, what can I learn from this piece of art? What can I learn from the passage of Scripture that this piece of art symbolizes? What, what can you tell me out of this that applies to my life? What, what are you trying to teach me? And the first word was the word submit. Remove your sandals. You notice he didn't ask Joshua to remove his sandals. He told Joshua to remove his sandals. It's the word submit. The second word is the word yield. Yield to God's authority. Here's the captain of the Lord of hosts. Joshua, I know you're the commander of the people, but I'm the boss. He's the captain of the Lord of hosts, and we are to yield to God's authority. The third word is the word humility. Joshua fell down and bowed down before him, for the place where he was standing was holy ground. Then there's a word of lordship, for that chapter ends, and Joshua did so. Then there's a word of holiness. God is holy. And when we go into the presence of God, we don't strut into the presence of God. We don't swagger into the presence of God. We yield in the presence of God. He's a holy God. And then there's an expected obedience. When the captain of the Lord of hosts told Joshua what to do, he expected him to do it. And then there's a word of submission. And you see, today's submission determines tomorrow's victory. What you do with Jesus Christ today is going to determine how victorious you are tomorrow. Today's submission is going to determine tomorrow's victory. And here's the last thing. If I am going to conquer for Christ, I must first be conquered by Christ. He has to take over. You see, the place where I stand is holy ground. It's His church, it's His office, it's His word, it's His spirit, it's His ministry. And if I'm going to conquer those things that keep me from being a part of what God's doing in this world, then he's got to conquer me. And if you're going to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself and beyond yourself and is eternal instead of temporal, then he's got to conquer you. And for every one of us, there is a captain moving on the edge of our life today somewhere in the periphery, but somewhere I pray to God during this service, he has moved from the side and now you are face to face with him. And he has said to you, it's time to take off your sandals.